Welcome back to All Things Video. This episode is brought to you by Bent Pixels, the premier technology provider for the world's leading video networks and next-generation media companies. The Bent Pixels platform provides back-office network administration tools to facilitate partner onboarding, network intelligence, and payments. The company also provides digital rights management solutions for content claiming and anti-piracy on YouTube. There's a reason four of the top five MCNs and dozens more across five continents trust Bent Pixels. Welcome back to All Things Video, a podcast dedicated to uncovering the past and charting the future of the online video ecosystem. I'm your host, James Creech, and today we're joined by Phil Ranta, the COO of Collective Digital Studios. Prior to CDS, Phil worked in traditional entertainment and then transitioned to early digital players, including VivaVision, ultimately joining Fullscreen in February 2012. As one of the first 10 employees at the MCN Powerhouse, he spent three years growing the creator network all the way through the company's acquisition by Otter Media. Phil is a talented comedian, fellow podcast enthusiast, and a new friend who I'm thrilled to welcome to the show. Yeah, I'm excited to be here. It's right. so great being on a podcast with you, by the way. Why is that? I don't know. It's like we've had a relationship where, you know, we nerd out over digital stuff oh, and we, sure. we chat well together, uh-huh. but now having it broadcast the world. I love this medium. Me too. I'm a podcast fan. Awesome. So just to start things off, want to learn a little bit more about your journey, especially getting into online video. Like most people, I stumbled into it, right? So... Um, I graduated from uh, University of Michigan with a film and video degree. While I was there, I shot a pilot with uh, some talent from Second City, Detroit. It was for that brief window when there actually was a Second City, Detroit. I was, uh, you know, taking classes and performing improv around the the area, so I was into that community. Mm -hmm. And Reno 911 just finished season one, Uh, so semi-scripted television was super in. So I thought, yeah, let's shoot a pilot, kind of in the style of Reno 911 with these people, and we'll make it about like college kids in their first year of college, because that's what we had. So we shot it uh, and started showing it around, and it started getting some interest in Los Angeles. So I'm like, well, time to go to Los Angeles. So came out here and ended up selling through to uh, superdeluxe.com, okay. which was kind of Turner's farm team for TBS and all of their properties. What year was this when you moved to L.A.? Uh, it was 2005 okay. when and I moved to Los Angeles. And the show was really taking off, had audience in L.A., and that's what prompted the move? Yeah, yeah. It was, well, mostly had uh, executives in Los Angeles being like, oh, it's okay. And I'm like, that's enough. That's all I need to hear. I'll go out, and I'm going to be the world's youngest showrunner, and then I'm going to be, you know, Spielberg by the time I'm 27. Which uh, is exactly what happened. Was exactly what happened, <laughs> yes. The path went exactly the way it's supposed to. Um, so yeah, all of a sudden I found myself in the digital world, uh, figuring out how to get more clicks and how to title things. We only did six episodes there, but still it was enough to get my feet wet and learn how to edit for short form. And, uh, so when that ended, another buddy of mine who I'd worked with in the past said, Hey, you have the short form experience. I'm working this place called VivaVision. They power channels for Verizon's VCast, which is kind of like public access, but on your cell phone and people pay for it. And then slideshow and video apps on your cell phone. At that time, it was, you know, nobody was watching video on their cell phone. So I said, yeah, I'll take that challenge. So I jumped in to uh, run the original productions team there and did that for many years. But it really was like public access television, right? It was, the budgets were almost non-existent. You just had to figure out how to get clicks and get people coming back. And we had a lot of success there. A lot of other 
networks like NBC and CBS were also on VCast, but they just weren't getting traction because they were cutting 22-minute episodes into three-minute snippets and saying part one, part two, part three. Whereas we were doing, like, bikini surf lessons. <laughs> and, you know, uh, we were running a Christian youth network at that time. And we were kind of, like, trying to do this high-end programming. And then we're like, well, what do people really want on their cell phone? We're like, we'll do Bible verse of the day. And then that took off and got a ton of views and started learning what premium was to certain platforms. So I really got to dive into SEO and, you know, low-budget programming in general. And then when I was kind of dumped out on the other end, I found myself with all of this experience. And I'm like, well, I guess I'm a digital guy now. <laughs> I guess it's official. So what platforms were you using back in those early days? Was it just owned and operated websites? Was there any, you said on their cell phones, so some sort of mobile distribution? Yeah, so we were distributing, I think I can say this now because that company has gone under okay. years ago, but um, we're using the platform for distribution, which is still around today. Uh, which made it very easy back in those days because those were the days of ringtones and wallpapers and that's what those platforms were optimized for, right? So we were using the platform for distribution. I mean, we were using the same kind of editing software you really use today, you know. Like most people are still on Final Cut 7 even instead of Final Cut X, same stuff. We were shooting everything on mini-DV, so it was pre-kind of digital being cheap enough to do that. Um, and yeah, we were distributing mostly through Rever and Blip, because they would pay wow. and YouTube wouldn't at that time. So yeah, we were there were a couple times where we presented to our board saying, yeah, we should get on YouTube. It's starting to pick up traction. And they're like, no, you can't make money from that. Keep going on to Rever where you're going to get 50% of the ad split, which was like 30 cent CPMs. But they're <laughs> like, it's something. So yeah, a little bit of a missed opportunity there. I wish I would have jumped on the YouTube bandwagon. But I mean, it's kind of the same stuff, different platform, you know? Interesting. You were involved in all these comedy projects early on on the business side of digital, mm -hmm. but you are also a comedian yourself. Right. You do improv, you have your own comedy podcast. Tell us a little yeah. bit more about how your interest in comedy evolved and how you balance being talent and behind the scenes. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, that was the dream when I came out here, right? I, I didn't come out saying, I'm going to be a digital media executive, like, like so many. I have a lot of conversations with people like Will Keenan, mm -hmm. who also came out here with like, I'm going to be a famous actor. And then they fell into digital and went, oh my God, this is great too. That's kind of my trajectory as well. Um, yeah, I did stand-up comedy and improv in college. And then when I came out here, it was just kind of a natural extension. I, you know, the way I find friends when I go to a new place is find the closest improv club and just start performing with people. And that's how I find my base, right? So uh, I was still doing a lot of comedy writing. I still do it on my free time. Um, just a hobbyist now. And yeah, naturally out of that, you kind of, when you're around creative people, they come up with creative ideas that you can't not do, right? So I find myself a lot talking to people and them saying, well, I start a YouTube channel and me saying, great, let's get cameras and go shoot it. Or uh, the podcast I've been doing for the past three years, um, the Sports, Sports, Sports podcast. <laughs> Plug. Yeah. Yep. It just came from a conversation I was having with two of my very talented comedian friends who, you know, said, hey, we should just start doing this once a week. And in the same way other people have, you know, poker games or bowling nights, we just now have our podcast night where we get together and chit chat and do jokes and character bits. And we just happen to put it on the Internet instead of just letting it die. So what are you writing today? What are you working on? You know, it, it varies day to day. So um, I've been working with on and off with this sketch comedy show Top Story Weekly in Los Angeles for about six years, which is 
um, at the Iowa West, which is a great theater in Hollywood, and they do a, a original sketch comedy show every week. So I write a lot of jokes for them. I used to write more sketches, but I kind of got out of that. Um, I've had a couple of pilots that I've been kicking around, but in no serious way, because if, even if I fell in love with it and got it done, like, what would I do? I'm not going to quit my job. Uh, but you're a digital media executive now. I'm a digital Can't media you just executive. Can at Collective and get I guess done? I could. I could send it over to Gary Binkow over in the original production. They can be like, hey, a talented young writer. Just <laughs> of this. Yeah, but it's, you know, you, you hit a certain point in your comedy career. Uh, I feel like every comedian hits this one point or another where you have to say, like, are you in or are you out, right? And if, what was that moment for you? I think it happened with full screen. Mm. You know, I, the two years prior to full screen, in between View Vision and full screen, I went out as a working comedian. I don't have that on my LinkedIn profile, but mm. I performed comedy on cruise ships for two years because I kind of hit my mid twenties crisis, and I went, "What am I doing with my life?" Um, so so stand up. This was improv. improv it was okay. with the Second City. Mm -hmm. um, they do a touring cast on Boatco, mm -hmm. and I do Second City Hollywood. Um, so I was with Norwegian Cruise Lines for two years, just trying to sort it all out, just like doing five hours of shows a week and then eating at buffets. And I read a lot of books and slept a lot and just trying to figure it all out. It was the easiest job in the entire world. I went from like an intense 12 hour a day for a six year job, dumped out into, all right, now you never have to work. Go sit on a beach and drink a Mai Tai. And I'm like, this is great. So valuable two years for my personal development. But yeah, then when I dumped out, I was like, I really miss digital. At that time, I was starting to do some website stuff with some friends as side projects, and I felt the pull, and that's when I stumbled into full screen, and as soon as that happened, I said, cool, I had my final hurrah on those cruise ships. Now I'm in this company that's really exciting, and it's growing quickly, and I feel like I'm, I'm running a team that I believe in, who are doing things I believe in. So, yeah, I think I, at that time I said, well, if Saturday Night Live called tomorrow and said, we want you to be a writer, would you take it? And my, for the first time in my life, my answer was no. I couldn't wow. take it. You know? So how did you meet the full screen team and end up coming into the business? Uh, you know, I, so a lot of them I knew by name, but I didn't know personally. So I have a tendency to kind of stalk people that I like uh, a lot. I, I feel like I've said this in casual conversations, but I feel like he doesn't even remember my name when I see him. But like Zay Frank, I see him speak wherever he is, right? And I kind of stalk him out afterwards and I reintroduce myself and say, hey, Phil Rant, I think you're a genius. So I kind of know the executives in the digital world just because I have LinkedIn stock and I go see panels. And so I knew George a little bit from those worlds. So uh, I was, at that time, I was very interested in what Maker Studios was doing. Um, very interesting what Machinima was doing, even more so because in the early days of Machinima, I was like, oh my gosh, this makes so much sense. Like, get a bunch of creators together, put them on a hub, make them popular, and then they have their loyalty, and you take cut of revenue, and you could sell them. And, like, the whole system made sense. So when I went in and met with George and Ezra, because I saw that they had job openings just on the full screen site, uh, they essentially said, well, what we're trying to do is very in line. We're doing a multi-channel network, but at that time that really didn't have any meaning. And they said, well, you know, Maker and Machinima, like we're trying to do that, but backed by technology. And I'm like, this is amazing. Like my whole career thus far has been the intersection of technology and, uh, and video, right? So when they shared their vision with me, I'm like, cool, I want in. Like at the time, I think I said... I can do channel services because I know you've got the NBC contract and I can build this partnership team. Like, however you want to use me, I'm, I'm in. I just want to do it. So the interview went well and then I continually called them and bugged them and said, hey, 
you ready to hire me yet? You ready to hire me yet? And after a couple months, they just said, yeah, sure. All right. <laughs> so tips for prospective digital job seekers out there. Stalk everyone. Yes, stalk <laughs> everyone. Yeah, know media. where they have lunch and then just get, oh, you again. Oh, all right. Fancy yeah. seeing you. And well, then- we all know those people, right, who are like professional networkers. Um, sometimes they can be annoying, but I always have this weird, I think it's because I was a shy kid. I have this weird respect for people who can just be like, like, um, the Jim Lauderbacks of the world who can just go into any room and be like, Hey you, Hey you, Hey you, I know everybody. Right. And you're missing the pointing that Phil's doing, but it's very, it's very applicable. Yeah. But yeah. So I, I try to force myself into that, but since I'm more shy to people I don't know, I just do it all online. Like I hit people up on LinkedIn and I'm like. I just saw your last video on YouTube. It was brilliant. Or congratulations on this move to this company. And, you know, I built relationships that way. But it's also, I'm stalking them, right? I'm keeping a mental Rolodex. I'm like, all right, who do I know at Facebook? Who do I know at Twitter? Who do I know at Snapchat, right? And after a while, you just start to, if you stalk people and reach out enough, you realize you know someone everywhere. And then it becomes really valuable. So Great. I should be a biz dev guy. Yeah. <laughs> well, and it sounds like ultimately a lot of your role at Collective Now is focused on biz dev. It is, yeah. yeah. Again, stumbled in. I've never, I've never been in a business school class in my life, uh-huh. or but I like uh, kind of futurist stuff, and I feel like biz dev is kind of getting to be your own futurist. Yeah. And when you're as handsome and charming as Phil is, it makes biz dev oh, amazing. Oh, yeah, I agree. <laughs> I absolutely agree with what you just said. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. So you ultimately came in in a talent operations role. Full screen. Yeah. Okay. Well, I, well, I came in originally as the uh, director of channel partnerships. And at that time, the team was me, right? <laughs> the, director of one. Right, exactly. So I kind of, they, they had partnered channels in the past and they had people who were working, but it was like George was partnering channel. Like everybody was kind of trying to build this network. They didn't have somebody who was dedicated to what does outreach look like and what assets do you need and what does our value proposition look like and how do we message that, right? So when I came in, that was what I was tasked for. I remember the first day that I worked at Fullscreen. I love telling this story because it sums up all startups everywhere. Uh, we were in this little tiny room and it was just picnic tables. I was sitting next to Ezra, who's the COO, and then George was on the other side of him, who was the CEO. And we had to bring our laptops from home. We didn't have laptops that time. So I sat down and... Uh, in the table and I opened my laptop and I had no idea what to do. And there was no like set training thing. So, uh, at one point, one of the guys who was an intern who then ended up being a worker there, who is now, uh, his name is Jeremy Gersman. He's now over at, um, Jukin. at Jukin. Yeah. He was just like, start, like start working, like just start doing Come it. Come on, Phil. Yeah. Just like, and I did, I had no clue what that meant. So I started writing a welcome packet for new employees. So I'm like, that's one thing I know they need. Yeah. It's just something that says, you know, hey, the, congratulations on your first day at full screen. Here's what you should know. And then I just went around and started asking questions of people and then wrote it down in a welcome packet. And yeah, it kind of evolved from there. And then through that knowledge, I learned how pe- we reached out to people, how the CMS worked, um, how to onboard people onto the dashboard. And then all of a sudden it was going well. And I did, you know, reports of how much money we were making off each channel and I was like, we should scale this, you know, there's, I can't do this all alone. Like we need to have like 30 more people out there reaching out and managing channels. And they're like, great, go, there's an investment case for it, go do it. So we scaled rather quickly. I think in the first year I was at full screen, I hired 40 some people. Wow. So 
Yeah, we scaled quickly, which turned out to be a really good bet, even though it was dangerous when we started with like a million bucks in funding, and that was it because the burn rate was going to be very high with hiring all those people. But you know, the it, it proved its case, so we were able to scale quickly, and before you know it, we were as big as Maker, and then um, yeah, it only took really a year of being there before we were kind of top three. It was the Machinima Maker full screen thing, and that all just came from aggressively scaling right we rolled the dice in a huge way and it worked that's awesome yeah so how early were you at full screen how many employees were there at the time i think i was nine okay. officially wow. yeah there was a couple tech guys there was uh, drew bauman was the cto at the time and i think he had one or two other guys working on his team um there's george and ezra and jay veraldi who was running biz dev at that time and then we had one channel services guy john holdridge who's still working yeah. channel services yeah. over there um, and then Jeremy Gersman was there who was like, uh, promoted into kind of, uh, he was kind of an everything role. Like he was an intern at full screen when there's like three people. And then Song, who's now over at Collab was working there. And I think that might've been it. That's a great yeah. group of folks. Great group. Yeah. yeah. Everybody became really successful out of that group. Which yeah. is, I mean, no it, it goes to show like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, startups really are about hiring the right people and then just being like, go make excellence. Don't be afraid to pivot. Make bold moves. And yeah. if everybody does that, then, you know. Is that from your line of inspirational posters? Yeah, exactly. I just rambled off all of my inspirational <laughs> posters at once. So you also mentioned that one of the things that attracted you to full screen in the early days was its focus on technology. Yeah. What were you building or what was the team building at that time? At that time, it was uh, hilariously simple, but I thought it was amazing. Um, I still think it's amazing, but at the time, now it's so commoditized, it's like, man. Um, but at that time, which was two thousand, early 2012... When somebody signed into their network, they got a dashboard login that was all theirs. And it showed uh, YouTube, mon the monetization, daily estimated earnings, but with the revenue split taken out, which was huge. You could also look at past statements, right? Um, and then there was a couple of scaled sponsorship opportunities because they had the Gorilla product, right? Which at, now everybody does it. Gorilla product for those listening. Yeah, yeah. So full screen was kind of first out of the gate with something like this, and now everybody like Famebit has it. Everybody, everyone's built these big businesses on it. But at the time, it was very simple. You can either buy um, amplification from the top few YouTubers who everybody's going after, and it's expensive and it's hard to get through their gatekeepers, or you can have thirty people giving you you know thirty thousand uh, impressions on it. And it comes out to the same thing. And it's actually cheaper to do it that way because these are people who aren't getting a lot of deals. So we built an engine where we were able to track, uh, you know, uh, many channels on a single sponsorship campaign, have an approval process, and get the same level of eyeballs on something for far less money. And that was kind of our original selling point to partners. is like, yeah, you're going to get thumbnails and banners, which somebody can't do unless you're a YouTube partner. And... Um, you know, you'll have us, you can reach out, and we can give you optimization advice. But the big thing is there'll be sponsorship opportunities through Gorilla. And in the early days, we were actually able to fulfill that in a big way. And then naturally, we learned the hard lessons of supply and demand where, you know, once your channel gets a thousand or once you get a thousand channels or five thousand channels and ten thousand channels, that takes a lot of sponsorship opportunities. I'm fascinated by this idea of sponsorship marketplaces. So I want to kind of uh, dissect this idea a yeah. little bit more first. 
was this originally built with just top tier creators in mind or was it to surface it sounds like deals for mid-tail and long-tail creators as well yeah i mean i think it was built with the mid-tier creator Mm -hmm. in mind more because at that time we i mean we didn't really have a dedicated sales team at that time but george ezra and jay Veraldi, they were all out selling and they were doing a great job of it for also running a company and i mean they're they're smart guys and they're driven guys but we weren't getting those. Those we were selling the top people, mm-hmm. right? Those we are one off deals. Yeah, one off deals yeah. manually. You know, pain in the butt, mm-hmm. right? So, uh, this was our way to be able to scale the network with you know the one hundred thousand subscribers and up people who aren't necessarily getting deals. Um, and why not open that up to all creators, like say Famba did or Niche, right. which was acquired by Twitter, rather than just keeping it within the full screen ecosystem? Was it because that was a recruitment differentiator? Right. Where we saw the big money in the early days was building a large and powerful network Mm -hmm. and then using kind of that data to be able to sell media and sell integrations. And, you know, it's still a smart plan. It's made difficult by the fact that if you have too many partners and not enough sales or too many sales and not enough partners... You're you're gonna be in trouble both ways. So it's a, it's such a delicate ecosystem. Problem. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. But there's nothing scarier than getting a bunch of RFPs in for one thing and never and not being able to fulfill it because you just don't have the inventory to do it, right? Because then you're like, it's like watching money get thrown down the drain. So yeah, I felt like uh, Gorilla was a good way to to balance that, um, but mostly for the mid tier creators because you can sell it. Like, you don't have to put names on a slide necessarily to sell Gorilla. You're just like, well, this is, it's, it's, don't do a CPC campaign, do this instead. And it's cheaper and more effective and more authentic. Yeah. And, you know, the, the pitch was there. Even today now, there are, there are specifically dedicated influencer marketing agencies, right? right. Like Immediate Kicks or Pop Shorts. Whereas mm-hmm. you see um, these platforms connecting brands with influencers like Realio, like Isaiah, like Famebit. Why are there so many of these? Do you think there will continue to be more? Or are we going to see consolidation? What do you predict? I think like so many startups, they see reports and they see like digital spending is in this billions and by 2016 it'll be this billions. And... You know, I like to say that the startup space is a really creative place, and it is a really creative place, but for the most part, most of the businesses that come out of it are really kind of like well-dubbed businesses, right? Where they say, all right, so digital spending is going to continue going up, and Snapchat uh, viewership is going to continue going up. So what if we create a digital marketing agency for Snapchat, (laughs) right? Like it's kind of like take one thing, take another thing, and make the most simple connection possible, and then launch it, right? Mm -hmm. I think that the trouble that a lot of these companies are going to have is... There's no exclusivity anymore. Everybody's pitching the same people, right? And it takes somebody like a collective digital series or something to find out where we can carve out some exclusive rights so that we can go sell the bigger package and something interesting and have a market differentiator, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think a lot of those companies will continue doing well because they're going to have the B2B relationship nailed. And if you have somebody who's high up at Ford who says, I will continue buying off that guy for the rest of my life, you can build an entire business off of just working with Ford, but that's, you know, it's, it can only scale to a certain point. Um, I, I always have kind of fallen in love with the companies who you can see that billion dollar company inside of there. If we just continue refining and pivoting and refining and pivoting, we'll get to that billion dollars. Like a lot of those companies, you're like, yeah, you're going to max out as a $10 million company and that's fine. Mm -hmm. Right. If somebody exited for $10 million, it's a five person company. Everybody's going to be super duper happy. Mm -hmm. Um, it's just never been my interest. Yeah. 
Fair enough. It sounds like it is becoming commoditized, yeah. and that as it becomes increasingly more programmatic, right. we'll see a race to the bottom as we've seen in all of these kind of network businesses. Absolutely, yeah. Okay. But everybody's going to try out everybody, right? Mm-hmm. And just getting everybody to try you out is going to build a pretty decent business. If you can just get into that pipeline, then yeah, I mean, I feel like, and I'm never going to do this, but I feel like if I started a digital marketing agency tomorrow, I could survive for a couple of years off of just going to people that I know at different companies and being like, come on, it's me, it's Phil. Just try one test buy for 30 grand and then doing that a hundred times. And then I'm like, all right, this is a decent business. Close up shop, take the money I made there and go start something else. Yeah. Right? But uh, but yeah, there, there'll be a couple winners and there'll be a lot of losers. And the, the winners are going to be the ones that... Uh, perform in their first year. So let's go back to your time at full screen. Yeah. Uh, three years and change there mm-hmm. went through the acquisition by uh, Otter Media. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about undergoing that uh, acquisition. Right. I, it, it was exciting, right? So when I was working at Viva Vision, there were acquisition talks as well. So I kind of learned about M&A, like all the things. And we were talking about this before the podcast, but uh, the thing I love about digital people and what you love about digital people is that when we're hit with a new challenge, we're like, all right, I'm going to learn everything about this like very scrappy industry. And the M&A thing was kind of the same, right? It was asking a lot of questions and figuring it out, um, learning what diligence is in a very deep way, which is where every tire in a company is kicked. And if, you know, naturally with at that time we had 50,000 channels or so. Um, and I was running that team, and they were like, cool, then we need to get everything organized. And it's like, we had gaps in our data, and we had to pull a lot of 2 a.m. nights just trying to figure out how to get everything organized. And, you know, naturally, there's the fears that come along with it, too, right? Which is, this was post-maker acquisition, and at that point, nobody quite knew. It's like, well, is are they going to turn them into a digital marketing arm, and then, like, get rid of How's talent going to come out on the other end on this? And naturally, it all came out fine, but those fears are there. But I feel like Otter Media was such a natural extension because we'd already been working with Churnin for so long. And um, uh, the kind of uh, OTT part of Otter Media makes sense. There's going to be money pumped into that for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, naturally, it's, it's a big swing, right? It's going from kind of a, a company who was had expertise in building UGC creators and uh, doing kind of spends against that and then saying, all right, we're going to go hard into this premium exclusive thing, right? Because it wasn't really what we were doing in the past, but, you know, it's a swing for the fences. I felt like it was a smart one. Like, it's, we still, I feel like, have, have yet to see the fruits of full screens acquisitions at Otter. But I feel like for the company of where it is, like, there has to be that sort of swing. Like, how are you different from Maker and how are you special? And I feel like that's that's their answer. It's funny, when I started talking to Collective even, um, because at that time I kind of knew that I wanted to start feeling out other opportunities. So I uh, had lunch with Post Dan. Post-acquisition? Post-acquisition, okay, you yeah. decided it's time to move on. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I like building companies. Sure. It's, it's a weird addiction of mine. Full Screen is a great company. The people there are great. They're going to be successful for a long time, but... I was like, I'm ready for new challenges, you know. Um, it's the adrenaline rush, right? Yeah. You're hooked on building something and watching it grow. And career trajectory-wise, okay. post-acquisition, that's when your, your resume is as valuable as it'll ever be. Because so you can tell the story of like, you know that you know that acquisition that just happened? I was in this position during that, right? So uh, naturally leverage that a little. But I had lunch with Dan Weinstein, and I remember one of the early things I said is like, I don't want to work with an MCN anymore. Like, 
my next thing, I don't know, maybe I'll start working for an app. I don't know, maybe we'll figure it out. And he's like, oh, we're not an MCN. We're a digital media company. We do, you know, we've done television shows and we've done, like, we got Video Game High School on. And, you know, at that time, Epic Meal Time was just about to launch a show on FYI. And um, he's like, that's what we do. You know, we have this pool of influencers that we work closely with to try to develop them so that we can hopefully get them into a, one of those premium projects and then upsell that. And that's where we're going. And I'm like, all right, that makes that makes so much sense. You know, I can work with that. So, so yeah. How many employees were there at full screen when you left? Ooh, maybe 250 or so, including yeah. Rooster Teeth. Yep. Yeah. It was, I mean, it, it got really big really fast. Mm-hmm. Um, and then moving over to Collective, what was the size... Just maybe a hundred, okay, one hundred twenty, maybe cool. something around there. Yeah. And you feel more comfortable in that kind of smaller environment? I think I do. Yeah, I felt like there was also a lot that I could do to help there. And at a certain point, when a company starts growing, you kind of you know what problems you need to fix. You go in and you fix problems. You go in and you launch initiatives, and then it's diminishing returns, right? Like somebody leaving a company is seldom a bad thing because. You go in, especially if they're good employees, they'll go in and they'll have a lot of energy their first two years, and then they'll start to run out of ideas because they'll have used their greatest ideas, right? Mm-hmm. So um, I felt like going into CDS especially, like I had new great ideas because it was a new landscape, and so I was able to come in and do a ton of damage in the good way for the first three months great. and launch a bunch of things, and um, yeah, it is kind of that new startup energy. You know? What were those priorities or objectives in the first few months? Well, I think CDS has, you know, it comes from a management background, and there's still a, a lot of that DNA that that you can feel every day in those hallways, which is awesome deal makers, right? They understand the Hollywood landscape better than anybody else out there in digital. Like, they can walk into NBC and be a trusted person to go pitch a TV show, right? That's harder for other MCNs who are like, their story is digital, and they're like, come on, take a chance. The things that struck me though is that a little bit of that digital dna was missing right like um we just launched our first creator platform so yeah i was able to do some of that and you know do some biz dev deals with other people out in the market that you know purely digital plays that when collective was kind of looking at the bigger deals and the million dollar deals they were kind of missing like well how do you do kind of merchandising at scale and you know how do you make people feel the love every day instead of having to be face-to-face meetings over drinks? We're like, here's what we're going to do. We're going to get you in front of Marty Scorsese and blah, 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 right? Like, so, yeah, I could come in and say, all right, this is what the digital creator needs. Keep doing what you're doing with the top guys. Like, what they're doing with Rhett and Link and Epic Mealtime stuff, brilliant. And keep doing that because it's awesome. But, you know, for the people who we have in our network who are 50,000 subscribers, like, how do we service them better? And I'm... They're cracking that code. Great. Yeah. And then just a few months into your time at Collective, uh, ProSieben, the second largest German broadcaster, yep. who was an investor, then decided to acquire majority yeah. stake. Diligence all over again. Right. No. So you, uh, you're no stranger to that process. Right. At this point. Right. Yeah. The m and I feel like I've been in a constant state of M&A for the past you know, two years, mm-hmm. but uh, which is stressful, but super fun. It's kind of like always holding on to a lottery ticket and having numbers constantly rattled off and be like, once we get those six in a row, then you're a millionaire. Not that I'm a millionaire by any means, but, <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's uh, ProSieben is a very smart company, mm-hmm. and they're smart in all the ways that Collective, you know, wants to go, right? They're 
they're a network who does great sales and they've got premium IP and they, they're very relevant in the German marketplace. Um, we wanted to be a worldwide uh, uh, MCN. I hate using the word MCN because I know that if like, Rez is listening to this right now, he's shaking his fist. But we did. We wanted to be a global creator network. And we feel like other people have made plays, you know, like uh, both Maker and Fullscreener made big, big plays in Brazil. And um, a lot of other people have started, like, gobbling up MCNs in other parts of the world. But we wanted to, like take what CDS did in America and what was special about it. And we started, we want to start doing it in other countries and I feel like Germany's the first big way into that because we can say, all right, let's take IP that's smart and that works. And now that we've got this incredibly powerful outlet, let's, maybe we do a TV show, you know, maybe we, uh, you know, I don't want to jinx it or I don't want to say any insider secrets, but there's a lot of big plays that are out there that like, maybe we want to start playing in, in Germany and America then maybe that moves to France and then maybe that moves to Italy and maybe that moves to Brazil and we can start spreading out that way. Mm -hmm. And you said the ProSieben team is, they're a very smart company. I would agree with that. I mean, they've, they're very diligent talking about M&A, right? They, they've looked at a lot of deals and they've passed on a lot of deals because Mm -hmm. they weren't the right fit or as you've encountered in the MCN space, using that term broadly, Mm -hmm. there are a lot of companies that are in the race to hit scale, but they haven't quite figured out that business model yet. And they're burning through a lot of cash. Yeah. Proceven hasn't rolled the dice on them. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, I think the fact that they've, they've worked with you, they had the initial investment in CDS and then it, I had assumed for a long time that they eventually would acquire your business, mm-hmm. but I'm glad that they uh, they took that time to find those ways to work together. Yeah, yeah, and frankly, I think that the kind of acquiring MCN thing is super scary. Mm-hmm. If I was somebody at a company like ProSieben and they were like, "All right, we want to buy an MCN," that would be panic mode because almost everybody has the same pitch, right? We've got the most premium creators, we're doing the most sales, like we're managing them as closely as possible. We've got these great relationships, but when you hear that from 50 people, it's like all right, who's, heaven's behind one of these doors, which one is it, right? What I really like about Collective, and one of the reasons why I came over there is because they had incredible focus. They said, we're not going to go for a long tail play. We're, we're focusing on just top creators. Does that or, still hold true now that it's... It does, yeah. I mean, even though some of them are smaller creators in our network, like when I first came in, I was like, oh, well, there's people with 10,000 subs. They're small creators, right? And then I looked at their content and I'm like, I know why we partnered this person. This person's making interesting IP. They could be a big creator. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's it still has that premium sheen. Uh, and, you know, CS71 as a greater entity now, I feel like ProSieben also had that, right? They're, they're doing, you know, whatever, 300 or 500 million monthly views uh, with their multi-channel network. And um, it's all, it's big people, right? They're getting it done with very few creators, so... I can't imagine Collective, and I, I never want to say never, but I can't imagine Collective ever deciding to be like, screw it, we're just going to partner whoever, right? Because it's just, it's what makes us powerful is the fact that we can pay more attention to each creator because we've got that incredible level of focus. Mm-hmm. Well, and while ProSieben has been very interested in following the space for a long time, some might argue that they've actually been very behind, especially mm-hmm. if you view their competition with RTL Brosman right. Group, right. which has you know, invested in and then ultimately acquired significantly more mm-hmm. digital video businesses, whether that's Style Hall, Divamove, right. um, Broadband TV, for instance. Mm-hmm. So do you think that 
Studio 71, Perceivend, is this a step to get more into the game in that oh, yeah. competition? Yeah. I feel like every major media company right now is having that panic moment, right? Because mm-hmm. so many of them are so far behind. Like, I've talked to digital media teams for all major networks, and, like, and almost every single one of them sings the same story, which is just like... Uh, all right, so I'm in this digital media department for this thing, and I'm knocking down their door every day saying, we have to have something that's original, and we have to speak to the millennial generation, we have to make it shareable, and we have to make it searchable, and every time they go, ah, it sounds expensive, make shoulder content for our TV shows, right? Like, and that's really dangerous. It's a, it's, and I think that once people uh, at those major companies take a step back and be like, oh my gosh, we're, we're, we're four or five years into kind of this influencer generation and we still haven't made a big play in it then they all start kicking the tires of everyone they're just looking around um and yeah i feel like i feel like we brought are able to bring a lot of value to proceed in that way and i have a feeling if proceed didn't come along we'd continually have more and more people have that light bulb moment and and continually knock on our doors and i know that all the independent mcns right now are just waiting in line saying which one's going to come for me next, and which one is going to have the offer I can't refuse? What do you think? Do you have any predictions there? Who are good acquisition targets? You know, I don't. I, I mean, I like a lot of people at a lot of those networks. Um, there's some that I like less, but uh, I feel like um, there, there's a lot of uh, international you know, MCNs, or more focused MCNs, like the kind Vertically of whistles focused. and... Uh, yeah. Um, even what like Garage Monkey's doing with such a small pool of auto creators, still they're they're cornering a market. They're going in, they're working with the right creators, they're cornering a market, and they're getting sales done. And I'm sure that there's going to be a, a line on a slide over at NBC or whoever, right, who says like, oh, we're going to go big into the auto market. Who's big in the digital auto market? This one is. Buy them, right? So... I've been surprised by auto, particularly as a category on YouTube, because the content translates very well to international audiences, has historically high CPMs, is an evergreen content vertical, and yet there hasn't been a very successful auto-focused MCN play yet. I mean, you've right. got GT Channel, you have uh, Garage Monkey, the, yeah. the Fox Sports uh, partnership there, and then now Donut Media. I yeah. don't know if you followed, but... I don't know that. Um, but it's interesting that, that no one has really conquered that space yet. It's weird, though, because there's there's still so few creators in that space, or so few relevant creators. A lot of the people who we say auto with air quotes, like, there's a lot of channels that are just like, I'm going to take my dune buggy and I'm going to drive over big jumps. Like, it's not really auto, and it's really hard to sell. So, I mean, there's the channels out there like Drive who are doing super premium stuff, right? But if I was just Joe Creator from Iowa, and I went, I'm going to start an auto channel... I don't even know where I'd start. Like, would I go to all the auto dealerships and just be like, I want to start doing car reviews, so, like, just let me into your cars. Or go to the car shows. I mean, I think you could do right. how-to videos about how to change your oil. Sure. It's like there's a lot of different content that could be I mean, if you, I feel like uh, I t- tell so many creators whenever people say, how do I just, like, go onto YouTube and become famous? I'm like, go find a corner of the universe online that's well-searched and well-sought out that isn't, is being underutilized. Look at who the top channels are, and then every once in a while you'll find a top channel where nobody else is doing it. Kind of like I always point to the Kinder Surprise Egg thing, right? Where Toy Collector, Disney Toy BR, right? Disney Collector BR, um, and Blue Collection and all of them were cornering this market. And it took a year before all of a sudden it started getting flooded because people are like, they're getting 300 million views a month. 
I can do that. And now it's just a completely flooded market. But that time, if you launched right when that started, like in 2012, I had people who I was working with who were like, should we launch one of these channels? Probably should have. We'd be millionaires, right? It was just totally underutilized and it was tapping into something that nobody predicted, which is three-year-olds watch YouTube and they watch those videos like crazy. Um, I feel like auto is a big part of that. Sports is a big part of that right now. And that's why I think what the whistle is doing is so smart. And I feel like Tastemade nailed it, right? There's a lot of cooking, but not a lot of good cooking. If you can get the cooking stuff together and aggregate it and help them in a real way and do sales, that's incredibly powerful, right? What interests me even more is those niche upon niche upon niche things, which is just like people, there's... 500,000 kids in college who are taking uh, American Sign Language classes every year. Like, who's cornering that market, right? And there's a couple, because I actually looked into that one. And every time I read a demographic breakdown sheet, I'm like, who's servicing them on YouTube? And then I look it up, and if it's not there, then I'm like, time to find a creator and let them know about this. But but yeah, auto's definitely one. To learn more about Florenta's uh, ASL and yeah. underwater basket weaving in San Right, exactly. Perfect. Well, for a while, I was um, doing the voice of pronunciation manual on that channel. Wow. Um, and one of the reasons why I enjoyed doing that so much is I'm like, this is brilliant. Like, it's trolling word of the day things, and everything you launch gets 100,000 views on it. This is amazing. So I like finding those little corners of just like, it's, it's low impact to shoot and record. It's super high volume in terms of how many people are coming in and viewing it. It grows quickly. It's focused. Like, I love those concepts. Mm -hmm. Like, Hot Pepper Gaming. Love those concepts. So simple and beautiful, and it fills such a weird need, which is like, it's the jackass of gaming reviews. It's like, perfect. Can't pass there you on. go. Talk about uh, combining two ideas yeah, you yeah. mentioned earlier and bringing them together in a business and a growing space. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's funny because I, you know, coming from sketch comedy and improv backgrounds, that's oftentimes how you create sketch comedy, which is just like, uh, all right, I find the DMV funny. Why do I find it funny? Because the DMV, like, everybody acts like zombies. Oh, zombie apocalypse at the DMV. There's a sketch. Go do it, right? So Great. it's the same with YouTube channels, especially in comedy right now. The ones that are, like, conversations with a two-year-old. And, mm -hmm. like, I'm, I'm very intrigued by those that are just kind of, like, tapping into something so real, you know? Yeah. Have you been surprised by any of the traditional media companies that have made investments or acquisitions, especially more recently? So... For instance, MLG, or excuse me, um, now I'm forgetting the name, who, who acquired Zoom and TV mm -hmm. and Splay out of right, Scandinavia. Right. And then ultimately ITV has made several investments in mm -hmm. the space very recently. Yeah, I mean, not definitely not surprised by it. An investment is an easy way to say, like, I want to play, but, you know, I want to play, you guys go play on my behalf, and therefore I won't miss out on this wave, right? Mm -hmm. I'm actually amazed there hasn't been way more investment money going in. Um, which is weird to say with how much investment money is going in. But there's still, you know, a, a lot of of big players out in the space who and of course I won't <laughs> I won't say their names because I want them to play with me. But a lot of big players out in the space right now who really haven't worked that hard into digital. Or they think that they can just say, Well, we'll just build it in house. Mm -hmm. And that's also very dangerous, especially a long, in like hard this, run. Yeah, it's collaborative space, right? Mm -hmm. Where you need to be able to say, all right, I've got this IP. Instead of just doing shoulder content of this IP, how do you play with the greater online landscape, right? So, um, yeah, I feel like there's still a ton of money to come, and the people who are going to miss out eventually, the price are going to keep jacking up, and you're not you're going to get less bang for your buck three years from now. So, 
So what predictions do you have looking ahead into the future about what's going to happen in this digital video space? Oftentimes people call me cynical when I talk about this. So I'm just prefacing it with I'm not cynical and I plan on working in digital a long time. Uh, I feel like we're going to continue moving towards either the blockbuster programming or the straight UGC programming. And this middle ground of semi-premium is, is a fool's errand that a lot of people are going after right now, right? There's a lot of people who are launching SVOD platforms and OTT platforms where they're like, all right, we'll take you know, this pe- people who are really successful on YouTube, and instead of them doing it for 100 bucks an episode, they're going to do it for 1000 bucks an episode, and it's going to get 10 times the views. Like, I just don't believe that. Um, I think there's too many platforms launching. I think a lot of them are going to go away quickly, especially SVOD, OTT, people who are trying to be the better monetized version of blank. We're like, Snapchat, but we monetize better. We're like, uh, you know, YouTube, but we monetize better. We're Facebook, but monetize, right? Like, I, I think that there might be some marginal winners in that space, but right now it's just too flooded. Shoppable video is something that everybody's talking about in a very, very big way right now. I think there will be a winner in that space, but I've now in the past year heard 30 pitches for that. So there's going to be a lot of a lot of losers and probably one or two winners. And I think that the winner is going to become the winner by getting acquired by an Amazon or something like that. And yeah, I think that the bedroom creator is going to continue becoming more and more powerful. And that's going to be the way into entertainment. And I think that there's where everybody's saying UGC is a fad and like, look at the early days of television where it's that kind of, uh, uh, or the early days of film where everybody's watching a train pull into a station. How is that that different from cat videos? It's like, cause cat videos are here to stay because I could still watch a cat video and laugh my ass off in a way that I can't watch a train pulling into a station and be like, whoa, spectacle. Right. So I, I think bedroom creators are going to continue being powerful. I think there's going to be an entertainment, I'll say lower to mid class, that's going to continue being more and more powerful. Um, people making thirty-six grand a year by making YouTube content is going to be more and more of a thing year over year. And there's going to be those breakout stars, but there's going to be fewer of them because as as the audience grows uh, on YouTube, the amount of creators grows faster and the amount of content grows faster, which is good and bad, right? It's good because I had to work at Walmart when I was 16. If I was around right now, I'd be doing six Let's Plays a day and I would be making as much as I was at Walmart, even if I wasn't successful, just based off back catalog six months from now, right? So yeah, I think that, and then the blockbuster piece, right? I think that there's always going to have to be content that there's a shared conversation around. And that's why I think that everybody laments the death of television. I think that television or something like television is here to stay, right? Which is shared mass viewing experiences. That's going to require more marketing to launch. I think influencers are going to play a part in that. Mm-hmm. Like they are recently in more of the films, like the Smosh movie. Exactly, exactly. And um, even when you you know look at things like At Midnight, which is just programming that's able to own Twitter every night for a few hours, they own the number one hashtag. Like that, that kind of programming is going to continue to get out there. And again, there'll be a couple winners for a whole lot of losers. Like for every one of those, there's going to be a lot of ads where they have the hashtag and the ad is just like. Silly dance. Hashtag silly dance on this. And then you can go on Twitter and search and nobody's doing it, right? By the way, that's the hashtag for this podcast. So if you're listening, please. Hashtag hashtag silly silly dance. dance. Upload your own silly dance and make sure to hashtag silly dance and James might retweet you, right? Exactly. Phil, if you were starting a business in the online video space today, what would you do? That's a really good question. I thought about it a little bit when I was looking at exiting full screen. And what I wanted to do was a 
kind of portal-esque um, production house. I wanted to get back into the production side, but with a little bit of a twist, right? Um, what I where I think BuzzFeed really succeeded where others were not able to. So there's a million people who tried to start their I'm a digital production company. All of them ate crap and went away. Well, most of them ate crap and went away because everybody's like, I'm just going to launch this $100,000 web series and then I'm going to get a million followers on YouTube and then I'll be Red Bull, right? <laughs> and then, no, it's very hard to do and it's, it's tough, right? So, so what I wanted to do was launch a production company that was focused on really native to the platform utility-based content in kind of the same way that BuzzFeed almost made entertainment utility-based where it's like, I'm from Michigan, and therefore I can do top 10 things that only Michiganders would know. And then I'll do Facebook advertising that'll point it just to people from Michigan. It'll get shared, and I'll put in $1 and get $2 out the other end, right? Also, finding these underserved markets and finding easy ways to do it opens up a lot of things, right? Like, who's doing the number one subscription box unboxing channel, right? And then using those affiliate links to drive revenue. could probably put $1 in one end and get $2 off the other end. And probably get the boxes for free. Probably get the box for free, yeah. And then if you do 20 of those channels, you've built a business. If you then start bringing on employees and do 100 of those channels, then you all of a sudden build, like, kind of remember the old blog networks where they're just like, this is the quilting blog network. And they just built it out into a circle so you could click to one or another. Mm -hmm. Like, where's that for kind of YouTube uh, only owning 100 channels that are all hitting these different portions of the market that's all owned by one company? Mm -hmm. That intrigued me. Uh, ultimately, I was like, I don't want to be broke for the next three years, so I didn't do it because startups are horrible. To, like People who do startups have to be crazy people. Thank God they're there, but I don't know if I'm crazy. Enough. I'm a little too level-headed. So, hmm. Do you think you'll ever get the itch and become crazy enough to do your own thing? Yes. Okay. I think I will. I think it'll probably happen um, when I'm, you know early 40s I'll probably hit my midlife crisis and be like how come I never started a company by then I'll be doing like 360 degree hologram video <laughs> production or but yeah and I, I have a feeling that when I do it'll probably be back in the creative and production space because I mean I love operations and I love biz dev and you know it's mostly just because I'm enamored with the landscape but I always feel that itch of like I want to start writing I want to start shooting I want to start editing you know Maybe be an on-screen talent. I don't know. Yeah, there we go. Um, Bring it all back full circle. Yeah, it's all still intriguing to me. So, What recommendations do you have for people listening? Whether it's books you're reading, apps you love to use, productivity lifestyle hacks. Yeah, totally. Um, you know, I'm going to look in my phone really quick because I'm now dropping the name of one. But in the meantime, I'll recommend Yes, Please. It's a book that was written by uh, the people who do the corporate workshops through Second City, Kelly Leonard and the like. And uh, it's about uh, how using the rules of improv will help you in your business life. Yes, and. Yes, and. And, you know, uh, how to make sure that a pitch meeting is, is running along and, you know, how to encourage creativity. And uh, also Creativity Inc. Well, I was a huge fan of that book. I'm very into, like, kind of hippy-dippy workplaces where it's like, no, follow, follow visions and go down that rabbit hole. And that's the only way you're going to make something that's truly interesting and different. Um, Checky is one I just started using. It measures your mobile phone usage by, by app. Uh, so at the end of the day, you can see how much time you spend on each app every day. Uh, I started using that and I'm like, oh my God, I'm on Facebook an hour a day. And I've started regulating wow. that. 
And now I've regained a half hour of my day, which is great. And uh, I, I recommend this to everybody, but the four-hour work week. Yeah, so terrific book. I tell everybody to read that, and those who haven't read it yet are missing out. It's extreme, right? But and I, it's extreme. You know, I've heard that you're a workaholic. Yeah. I subscribe to that lifestyle as well, unfortunately. Right. But I've heard that, or I tell people that even though the four-hour work week is extreme, I think it challenges you yeah. to to push yourself to automate as much as you can or to right. live a lifestyle more balanced that allows you greater perspective yeah. in the future. I mean, that's the thing is I, I'm terrible with work-life balance. I'm, I'm always on, but also I kind of choose it. Like work is my job and my hobby at the same time, and I prefer it that way. Um, but one thing that I take away from that book that I think is really valuable is like, think about the value of what you're doing with your time. And then if you're doing like manually entering numbers in a spreadsheet, and it's something that you could send out for somebody else to do and for cheaper than the value of your time, do it. And then you're going to reach your goals faster and younger. And then also I got obsessed with the mini retirement thing, which is why I started working as a comedian on a cruise ship. That's great. After have you had other mini retirements? Or so, I first of all, explain no. to listeners what a mini retirement is. Sure. Tim Ferriss. So yeah, the way that Tim Ferriss words it is everybody takes their retirement at the end of their career. And by that time you're old. And like you, you wish that you would have done it younger. So instead of doing it all backloaded at the end of your career, you can take mini retirements throughout your career. Take a year off here, two years off here. Refresh. Think about what you really want. And then get back in there. And then you're taking the same amount of time off as you would be by retiring all at the end. But you're going in with like a cleaner and clearer mind. Um, that was one of the big inspirations after V-Vision to going out and being a comedian was, you know, I, I was like, what am I doing with my life? Like, I jumped so far into digital so fast, like, need to clear my head. So that was my mini retirement. And who knows, maybe in the, you know, five years, I'll be on another one. But but I'm obsessed with that idea. I want to I keep pursuing that. Increasingly, I've been thinking about combining this idea of mini retirements with launching a startup, running a yeah. business. So, for instance, you could go to Thailand or live in Malaysia, mm-hmm. right? And you, you, sometimes you're at home late and you're, like, watching... Uh, one of those house hunter shows and you see people who are getting like a three bed, two bath house in Malaysia for 300 bucks a month. Right. Like, right. I pay that much in parking. Yeah. Like how do I, how can I move to Malaysia, mm. live this incredible life, build a business and uh, enjoy that time? Yeah. Oh, I was in the Philippines recently and it's the same way. Like you go into a, a McDonald's or something there and everything's like a dollar. I'm like, I can, like, I could kind of retire now. There is no uh, dollar menu. It's just the Right, menu. exactly. It's just the menu, right? And naturally, portions are small, but still, it's like everything's so cheap and, and rent is so cheap there. Like, yeah, you can legitimately buy a house for five grand, right? And if, I'm, if I can go and buy a house for five grand over there and then live by eating meals that are a dollar per meal, I could live the rest of my life and never work in the Philippines. I would go insane because I need to work, but... But yeah, you can probably also buy a house for five grand in like Detroit, but uh, right, exactly, might be a little more interesting. Yes, and I'm from Michigan, so that would be a lot of people I went to film school with because I went to University of Michigan. A lot of them kind of started up that artist community in Detroit thing when houses were free, and I, I respect that too because a lot of them are doing the same things that I love about YouTube creators. Right, they're getting a bunch of creatives together and they're throwing paint against a wall and screaming and throwing exhibits up, and then like they love their art and they're just like. Everybody else should love it too. And some of them are right and some of them aren't. But the ones that are right are the ones that are breaking boundaries down. Cool. Where can people yeah. find you? Sure, Let's yeah. Uh, I'm at Phil Ranta on almost every social media platform. So I'll simplify it by just saying at Phil Ranta for Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, Zanga, all that stuff. Saying, uh, yeah, MySpace is still live. Um, 
No, it's probably not. So you can find my podcast uh, if you just go to soundcloud.com slash sports, the number three podcast, which is my passion kind of side project. Still doing a show at Second City Hollywood on Sunday nights. It's kind of the old person show, but I do it. So that's at 9 p.m. on Sunday, and that's fun. It's all with other people who are kind of in other areas of the creative industry who are getting together and just having fun on stage. So it's a cool show. And yeah, every time I go on one of these podcasts, I always recommend one channel that I'm enamored with at the time. You know who I, uh, this is kind of an, an older one, but um, but I love it. Kind of funny, if you've been watching that. Greg Miller's stuff. Um, they just started doing like more live podcasts. Uh, Greg Miller was a guy from IGN. He's now over in the Collective Digital Studios Network. He's a genius. He's just like a talker, right? He's a, he's a professionally interesting, engaging talker. He's like Kevin Smith for the gaming generation, where it's like when he starts talking, you just like rapped. And the kind of funny guys are, they're almost like what Rooster Teeth does with their podcasts or, you know, they're just very charming and they, they're very funny. So definitely look for them, kind of funny and kind of funny games, um, all great stuff. Awesome. Phil, thanks so much for being on the show. It's been a pleasure having you. Yeah, and, thank you, James. Uh, love the conversation. You bet. Me too. Thanks for tuning in to the All Things Video Podcast. I'm James Creech. We'll see you next time. Thank you.